Well, that clock says 926. That's pretty close for me. How many have heard of Vince Lombardi? How many have heard of Vince Lombardi time? If you're not 10 minutes early, you're late. <laughs> so we're going to honor that today. <laughs> Let's go ahead and get started. Did God use evolution? Now notice the subtitle here, A Defense of the Gospel. We are all called to be defenders of the gospel. Paul was specifically called to do that, wasn't he? What we need to be able to do is know the gospel, share the gospel, and defend the gospel. That's part of being a Christian. It's our duty. It's not just the pastors or those who go to seminary. All Christians need to know how to do this. Know it, share it, and defend it. So what is the gospel? Let's start here. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the, get this, what scriptures? The Old Testament, right. And that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Scriptures that are being referred to go to the Old Testament. There's your basic gospel right there. Wow, that, that covers it. Also, I'd like to give John 3, 16. Very short version. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. As gospel means good news. We need to share that good news with people. Now, John 3, 16 is a very important verse. I've only been in one church where nobody knew it. They never invited me back. <laughs> but what about John three seventeen to get the whole gospel? John 3, 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. A key word in the gospel there. That word takes us back to the book of Genesis. If we want to understand the gospel, we must understand why do we need to be saved. That word says something is not right here. Something's gone wrong, and we need to be saved. So if you really want to understand the gospel, you've got to go back and find out why we need to be saved. So back to Genesis. We have a perfect beginning. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, God is the creator of all things. That is part right there. And we also had a perfect creation. Then God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Does that mean perfect? Yes, it does. In Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, it declares the works of God are perfect. Was creation the works of God? So therefore, they're perfect, aren't they? The Hebrew word for very there actually means exceedingly good. Perfect. So God's creation was perfect. Nothing wrong with it. Because his works are perfect. His ways are perfect. Then we have a warning. Now, God gave us a warning. Gave Adam and Eve a warning. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat, freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil shall not eat, for in the day that you eat, you shall surely die. God gave us a warning, and then he said, if you disobey, there'll be a penalty. You'll be punished, and the punishment would be death. You know what? God keeps his promises, doesn't he? So guess what happened? Man's rebellion, the fall. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, remember it was the woman, 
that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. God gave us one rule, and he said, don't do this or you'll be punished. God kept his, his rule, didn't he? He kept his promise. We all die. And this is both spiritual and physical death. The Bible's very clear on this. Because the Bible tells us that if they could have stayed in the garden, they could have continued to eat from the tree of life and lived forever. Those are the words in the Bible. We could have lived forever if we had not sinned. But we do not live forever because the punishment was spiritual and physical death. The Bible's clear there. So the consequences of sin, death and the curse. The creation was perfect, now, all of creation is coming under the curse. Romans 5.12 says death came through one man. That teaches of human death. But Romans 8.22, 20 through 22, teaches all of creation is under the curse because of one man's sin. So everything is under the curse. Not just humans, but the whole creation is under the curse. Romans 8.22. The wages of sin is death. Romans 5.12, 6.23. For all has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Separation from a perfect and holy God now. This is why we need to be saved. This is the part of John 3.17, folks. To understand that we're saved, this is where we have to go. Back to the book of Genesis. In other words, there are four components to the gospel. God, his creation was perfect. Man, we rebelled against God. Jesus Christ is God's solution, how God acted to save us. It is the central core component of the gospel message. Then the fourth part is response. And it is not what we can do. It's what's been done for us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God and not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ladies and gentlemen, that is the gospel. If you want to understand the gospel, you must go back to the book of Genesis. If Genesis doesn't mean what it literally states, then we don't have much of a foundation. If Genesis is just a story for spiritual teaching, then God sent his only begotten son to suffer and die a horrible death on the cross for something that never really happened. See, Genesis is a very important book of the Bible. Four components. God, man, Jesus Christ and response. Understanding the gospel. Again, the central core part of the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And also we read from 1 Corinthians. But ladies and gentlemen, that whole thing is held up. The foundation is the first three chapters of Genesis. If that's not real history, we don't have a foundation for the gospel anymore. Matter of fact, we have a different gospel. I'm going to show that. The first three chapters are so important that the rest of the Bible was written because of the first three chapters. The first three chapters laid the foundation for why the rest of the Bible had to take place. That's why it's so important. If you don't believe the first three chapters, why do we need the rest of the Bible? This is where the attack is, though. See, the atheists understand this issue. They know they don't have to attack Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They know if they attack the foundation, the rest of it crumbles. 
The churches don't seem to get this. Aren't you glad you go to a church where the pastor believes it and preaches it? You have a very unusual church in this country. They stand on the authority of Scripture. Understanding the gospel. The foundation for understanding the gospel starts in Genesis. A correct understanding of the first three chapters is imperative to understand the gospel. And beware, false gospels were told. Everyone goes to heaven. God would not send anyone to hell. We all believe the same God. All religions are the same. That's a sure sign they've never studied it. And evolution is a fact. All false gospels. Now, let's get to one of these college words. Hermeneutics. Everybody ready to go to college? Hermeneutics. What is it? This is what we're going to use in this talk. It's a study of the interpretation of written text. How we interpret written text is a method for understanding and interpreting God's word. And one of those methods is called context. We must understand the context where the words are used to understand how to interpret it. Let me give an illustration. Military. Let's do a military illustration. I'm in the military. And I get my orders to say, we're shipping out tomorrow. What kind of a vehicle am I taking? If I'm in the Navy, well, if we say boat, that's kind of a slam. It's a ship. <laughs> if I'm in the Air Force, we're flying, aren't we? We're taking an airplane. If I'm in the Army, we're taking a Jeep. If I'm in the Marines, we're walking. <laughs> so it depends on the context to understand the word there. Also, hermeneutics, the principle of explicit and implicit. The explicit what we say is constrains the implicit. That was the explicit restricts explicit restricts the implicit. That was let me put it plainly. The explicit takes precedence over the implicit. If it's explicitly stated somewhere, that is more important than something that is implied. That's hermeneutics. We're going to use that to understand God's word here. Opinions do not matter, nor does science, folks. Or let's put it this way, the inter people's interpretation of the scientific evidence. Science is good. Our interpretation of the scientific evidence will not have precedence over God's word. If it does, then God's word is not your authority. You have something higher than God in your life. And that's a serious issue we have in churches today. So let's talk about this. Let's go through the creation account. The word day, who's my Hebrew scholar here? Yom, thank you, thank you very much. We got Yom. Now, the word Yom can have a lot of different meanings, just like the word ship can have a lot of different meanings. It can mean the daylight portion of a day. It can actually mean a 24-hour period. Some people seem to forget that. And it can mean some distant point in time, such as the day of the Lord. It can have other meanings. Now, if a word can have different meanings, how do we know what it means when we read it? Context. Not opinions. Not scientific evidence. Go to God's word and look at it. He gave it to us so we can understand it. We look at the context. Not the context somewhere else in the Bible, but the context where that word is used to derive the intended meaning. And we go through Genesis chapter 1. We read first day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. Notice the number of the word day. Is that important? Yes, it is. That occurs 410 times in the Old Testament. And it never means a long period of time. Never. It always refers to a short period of time, day. 
Now, does that prove the days were literal days? No. But it does give a tremendous consistency in God's word. We have to be very careful when we say prove. But it shows a consistency. Everywhere in the Old Testament, God uses the number of the word day. It only means a day. But you know, a lot of people in churches today, a lot of our university professors in Christian universities, know what they're teaching? That's not what God meant. I've got the degrees. Let me tell you what God really meant. Does that not sound like the Garden of Eden? Because that's exactly the same tactic Satan used in the Garden of Eden. Happening in our Christian universities. But God is good. He defined the days, gave each day a definite beginning and a definite ending. Evening and morning, first day. Evening, morning, second day. Evening, morning, third day. Everywhere in the Old Testament we find that phrase, it only means a day. Never anything else. I think we have a pretty tight case right there. God's days were literal days. Here's uh, Ting Wang, Ph.D. in Biblical Studies, Professor of Biblical Hebrew. In Genesis 1, Yom comes with evening and morning and is modified by number, so it is obvious that the Hebrew text is describing 24-hour day. Andrew Stedman, Ph.D. in Near Eastern Studies, Professor of Theology and Hebrew. There was an evening and there was a morning. One day essentially says evening plus morning equals one day. In this context, day is clearly defined as being a regular day. But wait, there's more. What we learn from commercials. <laughs> that guy is awful old. <laughs> okay, let's, let's do something here. How many of you still believe those things called the Ten Commandments? I don't know why you believe that. Making sure I am plugged in here before we run out of... Uh... Yeah, we're plugged in. I keep hearing that beep like we're running out of juice. I got to put these on. Yeah, we were off. That's why I kept hearing it. Now we're getting juice. See what computer engineer I am? <laughs> Just turn the plug on, it works. <laughs> now, why do you believe those Ten Commandments? They're kind of old, aren't they? I mean, they're thousands of years old. Have we learned a lot of new things since then? Besides, who wrote them? Was it God or Charlton Heston? <laughs> so I tell you, you mean God wrote them. How about if we did this? Suppose we had opened the Bible to Exodus and read the Ten Commandments. You think you could understand them? I like that confidence. Thank you. Let's take a couple. How about the command that says, Thou shalt not steal? Is that meant to be taken literally? Is that just open to our, our whatever we want it to be? Or it should be taken literally. How about the command that says, thou shalt not murder? Should that be taken literally, or is that just a suggestion? Open to interpretation. So it's not open to interpretation. These are meant to be taken literally. Okay, let's go to commandment number four now. Exodus 20, verse 11. Remember, God wrote this down himself on the tablets. For in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all is in them. He wrote down six days, didn't he? And you just agreed this is meant to be taken literally. Therefore, ladies and gentlemen, if we don't believe the days of creation were six little days, then this commandment doesn't mean what it literally states in its open to our interpretation. And if commandment number four is open to our interpretation, how can we trust the other nine? The Bible warned us in the book of Psalm, chapter 11, verse 3, 
If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? By giving up our foundation in Genesis chapter 1, the plain reading of the text, we've now given up the Ten Commandments. That's how serious this issue is. If commandment number four doesn't mean what it says, why trust the other nine? Now, does the Bible explicitly state anywhere that the earth is about 6,000 years old? No, it doesn't. comes real close, though. It's a very strong implication. Genesis chapter 5, the genealogies. There's a unique set of genealogies here, unlike any other set in the Bible. What we get from the genealogy is when the person was born, when the next person in the timeline was born, how long they lived, and when they died. That is enough information to determine whether there's any missing names or not. And there are no missing names. But God does things so great it wouldn't matter if there's any missing names. Because you line these names up, what you find out is Adam was living at the same time as Noah's father. And Noah was living at the same time as Abraham's father. In other words, their lifespans overlap. So it wouldn't make any difference if there's any missing names. You get the same time. Wow. Let's see what happens when you add this up. Let's do a little arithmetic. Anybody remember how much 3 plus 1 is from last night? <laughs> This is going to be easy arithmetic. We know from the time to today back to the time of Jesus Christ is about 2,000 years. We also know from records that the time from Jesus back to Abraham is about 2,000 years. So the only time in question in the Bible is from Abraham back to Adam, and that timeline shows about 2,000 years also. Anybody add that up for me? Right there, we get an age of the earth about 6,000 years. Oh, but wait a minute, Mike. You forgot something very important. There could have been millions of years of geologic time before Adam. No. Jesus Christ had something to say about that. In Mark 10, verse 6, Jesus Christ makes this statement. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. What is Jesus telling us? That man and woman were on this planet from the beginning of the creation, not after millions of years. How does he know? He's the creator, folks. This is his word. The Bible gives a pretty airtight case here that this earth cannot be old. Is that a problem with scientific evidence? No, it is not. The scientific evidence overwhelmingly supports a young earth. Now, not all of it supports 6,000 years. It does support a young earth because the science is limited. And our knowledge of it is limited. Incidentally, no one can prove the earth is four and a half billion years old because that goes beyond the limits of science. We've put it out there as it's a fact. Folks, if you're believing that's a fact and you do not understand science, it cannot be done because they're all based on assumptions. Now, let me show you the meaning of this. Remember, we're talking about the defense of the gospel here. Let me take a literal interpretation. Is that okay if we take the Bible literally here? Okay, good, good. Starts off with, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Then God goes through six days of creation. Then he calls it very good or perfect. That's the correct order, isn't it? Then comes the fall. Then comes death. Is that not the order the Bible reads? Okay, so I'm not changing anything there. Now, let me show you what we have when we take what I call a non-literal interpretation. We're going to insert millions of years. We have millions of years of time going on. Finally, along come Adam and Eve. Then comes the fall. Here's the critical question. What would have been going on for those millions of years before Adam and Eve and the fall? Death 
decay and disease because that's what the fossil record is. It's a record of dead things. A belief in millions of years, no matter how you put it in there, ends up being a belief in death before sin. What has that just done to our gospel now? Why did Jesus come? To, to seek and save those who are lost. If sin was not the cause of death, then who or what is? You see the pro problem now with millions of years. Yes, folks, the age of the earth is a critical issue in the Bible. Jake Hebert, Ph.D. in physics. Despite popular hype, the preponderance of the evidence clearly favors the truthfulness of the Bible's account of a young earth. And a biblical worldview is the key to making sense of both the scientific and historical data as well as the meaning of life itself. See, it's not just Bible folks that believe this. There are many scientists out there that uphold this. Here's the gentleman, PhD in astrophysics. He puts it very plainly. If the Bible is not reliable in its historical statements, how can it be true in other statements? Right, so you can't trust the history. Why trust the spiritual things? If Jesus didn't speak the truth about Genesis, how can we trust what he said about sin, the cross, resurrection, and everlasting life? Jesus Christ is the truth. And if he affirmed the little creation of the world in six normal length days, we Christians should do the same. That puts it very plain there. If you don't trust Genesis, the first chapters of Genesis as the history, then what about the spiritual things? John chapter 5, verse 46, 47, Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. If you can't believe what Moses wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? John chapter 5, verses 46, 47. Jesus made very plain. Trust what he did. Six days. Oh, but Mike, Mike, couldn't God have used evolution? Wrong statement for any Christian to make. Such as God could have used evolution? No, don't say that. Don't ever say that. Why? Because it's not a matter of what God could have done. It's a matter of what did he do. And it's in the Bible. Don't get into those what-if games. I don't play them. Well, what if God did this? It's not a matter of what if God did. What did he do? So let's take a look at this whole thing. God used evolution. Logic. Mike, I thought we were talking about the Bible. Well, logic is a characteristic of God. How many like logic? We all do, don't we? Now, in logic, there are laws of logic. And one of those laws of logic is called the law of non-contradiction. The law of non-contradiction basically teaches two opposites. Both can't be true at the same time and place. In other words, you cannot be there physically and not there physically at the same time, can you? Can't do that. Now, I know you can be there physically and not there mentally, but that's something else. We're just talking physically here. Okay. So what I want to do is compare and contrast God's order of creation with what the evolutionists teach. Two opposites, both can't be true. In the Bible, it clearly states God created the earth on day one and the stars on day four. So the order of creation is earth first, then stars. But the evolutionists teach the stars were here first, then came the earth. Are they those opposite order? Right. Both can't be true, can they? The Bible teaches that birds were created on day five and reptiles, the land animals, on day six. But the evolutionists believe the reptiles were here first, 
Then came the birds. Those are opposite. The Bible teaches God formed this earth out of a watery mass. Evolutionists teach it started as a hot fireball. Those are opposite. The Bible teaches that God created the land plants on day three and the sun on day four. Evolutionists, just the opposite. Incidentally, if you're into the day-age theory, each day is millions of years, that means we have millions of years of plants with no sunlight. What did we just do to photosynthesis? <laughs> so the day-age theory doesn't work scientifically either. And finally, the Bible clearly teaches man was here first, then came death. Evolutionists teach millions of years of death and decay, then came man. These two are opposites. And there's only two ways we could have gotten here. Either we evolved or we were created. And since these two are opposites, what that means, one of them's right and the other one's wrong. And it's up to you to choose which one. Mike, you're making this tough. No, I'm not. It's what's in the Bible. Then, let's talk about the character of God. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and morning were the sixth day. The question I have is, what does God's very good mean? Does it mean millions of years of death, decay, and disease, or does it mean perfect? See, if you're believing in millions of years, then God called millions of years of dead things very good. You know what we find on some of these fossils? Signs of cancer. Did God just call cancer very good? You see, it changes the very character of what we believe about God when we add millions of years in. question is, where did the fossils come from? There's two choices. The Genesis flood were responsible for most all the fossils, or was it millions of years of slow, gradual processes? Which one was it? See, if you take millions of years of slow, gradual processes, all that would have happened before the fall, and that's death and decay before sin, and God would have been responsible for it all. The flood, we believe, is what caused most all the fossils, and we have good evidence for that. We talked yesterday morning about fossil graveyards, find graveyards of fossils, hundreds to thousands of creatures all buried together in sediments laid down by water. That's a tough one for the evolution. The only answer is many, many local catastrophes. Did anybody ever observe that? No. But we have the written record of a worldwide flood, unless we don't believe the authority of God's word. Now, let's do some challenges. It's one thing to understand the days were little days, but if we stop there, I'm only setting you up for defeat. Now, I have a limited amount of time here, but we're going to go through some of the major challenges people will have against the days of creation, be little days. And the first we're going to use is 2 Peter 3.8. I'm going to show you now. I'm going to, can, I, can I confuse everybody here? Do I have permission to confuse everybody? Go ahead. Sure. sure. Okay, I've now got permission right here to confuse everybody. Stay with me on this now. I'm now going to show you in the Bible where it teaches the days of creation were long periods of time. Oh, how many are confused right now? Ah, oh, good, good. I'm doing my job. Thank you for that permission. Second Peter 3, 8. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years one day. Does that not there tell us that a day can be a long period of time? Right there in the Bible we have it. How many are confused? Well, that is a very common argument. Let me show you how to handle this. Number one, we go to something called context. In that part of hermeneutics, context, how to study the text. In context, 2 Peter 3, 8, 
When I say context, read above it, read below it. The context there is not referring to the beginning. It says nothing about creation. It's referring to the end times. It talks about the characteristics of God. God created time. He's not bound by time. We are. So it has nothing to do with the days of creation. Also, anybody study English here? How many diagram sentences? It's going to come in handy in just a little bit. We're going to bring back that torture. But it was the best way to learn the English language. I think they should teach it in all Christian schools how to diagram sentences. You'll learn the English language. You'll never forget a preposition. There's a key word here in, in this verse. It's called as. That word as turned this, this paragraph into what we call a figure of speech or a simile, meaning it's not meant to be taken literally. But we do not see the word as in Genesis chapter 1. See, so the way we do this, we, we don't put them in a headlock and beat them into submission, although you might think that occasionally. We first of all say, well, the verse has nothing to do with the beginning. It's referring to the end times. Secondly, you point out the key word as makes this verse a simile or a figure of speech, meaning it's not meant to be taken literally. Then we come to the conclusion. The conclusion is, therefore, if you're trying to use 2 Peter 3 8 to support the days of creation for long periods of time, you're taking God's word out of context. We're not supposed to do that. So 2 Peter 3 8 does not support the days for long periods of time. But many people are using this. Let's do plant death. Let's take a look at uh, an astronomy here. The death of at least plants or plant parts must have occurred before Adam. Now, I believe Adam and Eve were eating from every kind of plant except one. So only one plant I don't believe they were eating from. And that plant is Brussels sprouts. Because <laughs> I don't believe they came till after the fall. How many say amen to this? <laughs> They're evil. Yes, yes. They're a very healthy vegetable, but um, I think I can support the fact that they're evil. Because <laughs> a Brussels sprout's just a deformed cabbage, and there could be no deformities until after the fall. <laughs> so, th I just want to let you know, this is nothing more than an opinion there. <laughs> but here he's talking about plant death. What happens when you dig up plants and eat them? You kill them. So there must have been some form of death there. That's what this man is referring to. Well, he forgot to read the Bible and understand the Bible. See, there's a common problem. We, we have these ideas outside the Bible. We want to bring them into the Bible. So we look for something surface level in the Bible that will help support what we have to say. In other words, we reinterpret the Bible to match what we want it to say, not what it actually says. You see, in the Bible, there's a very key word there, nefesh. In the Bible, God breathes the breath of life into humans and into animals. But nowhere in the Bible does he give the breath of life to plants. Biologically, plants have life because they have a cell structure. But biblically, they are never given life. This man did not do his research. And he's a popular teacher out there, persuading people into false doctrines. Plants never directly die in the Bible. They wither or fade. So they do not have death, a life, biblically. So when they dig them up and eat them, they're not killing. There's no death there. You must understand the distinction for what we teach biologically and what the Bible teaches. So no death before sin. 
Now, now we're going to get into a little grammar lesson. Genesis is not real history. I've had professors at Christian, so-called Christian universities use this one on me. The framework interpretation of creation argues that God used imagery to serve as a framework for his acts of creation. The scheme of the creation week is meant to be poetic in nature, not real history. This is a very common thing they teach in our so-called Christian universities. And since that professor has their PhD, the students believe it. And you've just lost your son or daughter. They no longer have confidence in God's word. That's why about 70% of our youth are leaving the church today. And part of it comes from within the church, not upholding God's word. So let's take this one apart. English language. We're what we call a subject-verb-object language. Subject-verb-object. Whereas we write a sentence, we put the subject first, then the verb, then the object. Other languages do it differently. Anybody speak Espanol here? They do it differently, don't they? They have the, the parts in a different order. But when we translate from Spanish to English, we translate it and rearrange the words to the way we construct a sentence. Now, the Hebrew language can be written two different ways. It can be written subject-verb-object, or it can be written verb, then subject, then object. What's the difference? In subject, verb, object, it's predominantly meant to be poetic in nature, such as we see in the book of Psalms. But if you write a Hebrew sentence, verb, then subject, then object, it's predominantly meant to be taken literary, narrative history. So let's take a look at Genesis 1. Let's take a look at the translation in Genesis 1. It reads, the literal translation, without shifting anything around, in the beginning. Now, in the beginning, we can set aside. Why? Because that's a pep prepositional phrase. Those of you who diagram sentence, you'll understand this. The little line comes down and out like that. Yes, that's a prepositional phrase. So let's set that aside. But here's what we get. Created God the heaven. Created is the verb. God is the subject. Heaven is the object. This is written in narrative format. Now, there's other ways to determine poetry and narrative form in the Hebrew language, which still supports this is narrative in form, not poetic. In other words, Genesis is written to be taken as real, literal history. And this is what I bring up to those professors. They're teaching these students willfully wrong information. Charles Taylor, Ph.D. in linguistics and professor of theology. Chapter 1, Genesis, was written in the Hebrew language which was consistent in using one structure for narrative and quite a different one for poetry. Hebrew poets, like David in the Psalms, used a subject-verb-object structure like English. In general, then, if the Hebrew goes verb-subject-object, it will be narrative, but it is subject-verb-object, it will be poetic. There's a person who has their Ph.D. in linguistics and understands the Bible. Now, Stephen Boyd has done the most extensive research anywhere on Hebrew verb forms and Genesis. And look at his background. Ph.D. in Hebrew and Cognitive Studies, professor of Old Testament and Semitic languages. He's one of the professors at the Master's University, California. 
This is what he states from his research. My findings in this step were that the probability that Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 is narrative is between 0.999942 and 0.99987 as a 99.5% confidence level. Can't get much better than that statistically, folks. I conclude, therefore, that it is statistically indefensible to argue that this text is poetry. And he's correct. So it is meant to be narrative and be taken literally. Now, let me show you the results of God used evolution. The plain reading of Genesis 1 cannot be understood unless you have a science degree. It presumes death before sin. Genesis 1.31 would indicate death and suffering were part of God's very good. This is pretty disastrous, isn't it? The Ten Commandments are now open to our interpretation. Of course, commandment number, five, number four said six days. In Mark 10, verse 6, Jesus would be wrong. And if he's wrong there, folks, maybe he's not our Savior. And we're still dead in our sins. Hermeneutics no longer applies. John 3.17, Romans 5.12 are not literal. There's no foundation for the gospel anymore. Logic no longer applies. And the flood would have to be relegated to a local flood. You cannot have a worldwide flood and an old earth. The two will not go together. That has to do with the fossil record. You see what happens? Psalm 11.3, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is a very key issue that's dividing the church. Hopefully it doesn't divide us in friendship. It should never divide us in friendship because somebody believes differently than we do. I've known atheists, and they're very polite people. They can be very good friends. People who believe in old earth, they still accept a lot of the Bible, don't they? But it is a different gospel. Let me show you. How many like picture format? They like pictures. See, some people use one side of the brain because they like pictures. Other people use the other side of the brain. Some people just don't use it. But uh, God's creation was perfect. Then comes sin. Because of sin, we have disease, death, sickness, and all that. But then after Genesis chapter 3, the entire rest of the Bible is God's plan of redemption and restoration. That is why the first three chapters must be taken literally, and we just don't understand the rest of the Bible. Why did Jesus have to come? Why did all this have to take place? Why does he have to make everything new? And by the way, if it was already in decay, what's he going to make everything new to? Now, when we look at the Bible and the world, the world looks at us and shake their head and say, you know, you Christians believe in some really weird things. Don't we? Let me give you an idea. How about a worldwide flood? How about a burning bush that is not consumed? <laughs> That's a pretty weird thing. How about a donkey speaking? <laughs> Jonah in the belly of a large sea creature for three days. These are pretty weird things. Turning water into wine. Anybody done that lately? Walking on water. Instant healing of the blind. Instantly calming a storm. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. One of the things I like to say is, let me ask you this question. Do you believe Jesus really uh, died and suffered, suffered and died on that cross? But do you believe he rose again on the third day? Why do you believe that? You didn't see it. 
It's in the Bible, right? Can I make it harder for you then? Can I do that? Good. I like people who give me permission to do things. You know, according to all known science, you cannot be dead for three days and come back to life, so you still believe the resurrection. You believe in a literal six-day creation then, even though our scientists can't do it. You see, here's where we have the contradiction in the church. We will uphold the resurrection, even though it's not scientific, but we will not believe in six little days because our scientists can't do it. And the world sees this contradiction in the church, and that's why they will not accept the Bible, because the church is now a stumbling block. If we don't believe it, how can we tell anyone else to believe it? You see, if we believe all those which are insanity to the world, why can't we believe literal six-day creation? God is a God of miracles. He can do things that we can't do. His word told us six days. Let's not change it. Haven't scientists proven the earth is old? What about carbon-14? What about radiometric dating methods? Guess what we're going to go into now? The thing you've been waiting for, the science. But all those, but what about biblical authority, folks? Let's get back to the real issue. What is your authority in your life? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. What does it tell us there? All of it's God-breathed. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. A lot of churches out there don't teach creation because it's too divisive. They're being disobedient to God's word, aren't they? Let's look at some scientific evidence. Age of the earth. Carbon-14. You know we find carbon-14 in coal. What's so significant about that? Well, coal is supposed to take millions and millions of years to form, according to evolutionists. The maximum range for dating carbon-14 would be about 80,000 years. After about 80,000 years, most all the carbon-14s decayed out of something. So if we're still finding carbon-14, and we are finding carbon-14 in coal, what does that tell you about the coal and where we found the coal? It can only be thousands of years old, not millions. Folks, this is based on observable evidence. Diamonds, supposed to be billions of years old. Diamonds are made out of pure carbon. They're produced from carbon deposits, just pure carbon. Should there be any carbon-14 in them? No. No, should be no carbon-14 in diamonds. After 80,000 years, should all, all be gone. Guess what we're finding in diamonds? Carbon-14. Now, this research was done at the evolutionist labs. This is what they found. Dinosaur bones. Finding it all over in dinosaur bones, which means they cannot be millions of years old, only thousands. And carbon-14 was a base, the whole dating process was based on an assumption which was proven false. Even Dr. Willard Libby, the founder of it, noted that there was an assumption, knew it wasn't true. But yet, it's being taught as an exact form of dating in our public school systems. No, folks, it is not an exact form of dating. It is only reliable up to about two to three, maybe 4,000 years at most. And we're not being told that. If you want to get the Red Answers book, we don't have it here. I don't know if one of the other tables do, but you can get it from Answers in Genesis. The Red Answers book, I wrote the whole chapter on carbon-14. I read through all the radiocarbon journals. I'll tell you, that's a real snoozer. You got insomnia, that'll cure you. <laughs> read through every one of them. Used their own research 
to support what, I'm, what I was saying in that chapter, carbon 14. Doesn't work the way we believe it is. Then we got the radiometric dating methods. Every one of them is based on assumptions. Those are not even being taught. And they're inconsistent. You can date one rock by four different methods, get four completely different ages. They don't tell you that. They don't even tell you why they chose one. And every time, I emphasize, every time we know when a rock was formed, we never get the correct age. They don't tell you that either. Let's take a look at some things. Jonathan Safadi, PhD in physical chemistry. Age isn't really measured, and that's true. Age is not measured using radioisotope mating methods. Rather, certain processes, amounts of materials are measured, and age is inferred via certain assumptions. That's how it really works, folks. We never get an age, we infer an age on. Vernon Cups, PhD in nuclear physics. Of the eight assumptions, none can be considered to rigorously hold in all situations. Therefore, dating by this method is at best a hypothesis concerning the age of any rock, sweet, or min mineral. It is certainly not a scientific fact. You have pretty good credentials there in nuclear physics. Here's Jim Mason, PhD in experimental nuclear physics. The fact that the radiometric ages for rocks of known ages turn out to be so seriously inaccurate is a strong suggestion that one or more of these assumptions is incorrect. What is that telling you there? This is what we really know, but it's not being what's taught. Vernon Cups again. Thus, the potassium argon, everybody knew that's what that meant, right? Potassium argon. <laughs> In other words, potassium over time decays into argon. Some elements over time will naturally decay into another element. The potassium argon model does not meet even the basic criteria of a hypothesis in the scientific method. The potassium argon dating method, once heralded as a solid scientific method, has proven to be unreliable. Now, these people work with it directly. They don't go by hearsay. They do the work. And what are they saying? It doesn't work. Let's take a couple examples. Sunset Crater, northern Arizona. Potassium argon dating about 200,000 years. That volcano, we believe, went off in about 1065 A.D. A little bit off there, about 99%. Lava flows, New Zealand. Dated 275,000 years to 3.5 million years. Those when those rocks were formed from those three eruptions. Mount St. Helens, 1980. They were dated between 350,000 to 2.8 million years old, but in fact they were formed in 1980. Now, here's one thing for dating. When you go to the lab, now the textbooks will actually state these are exact forms of dating methods, exact forms. But when you go to the labs, you fill out a form. You take your sample to the labs, you fill out a form. And one of the entries on the form is where'd you find this sample? Why do we need to tell them that if this is exact form of dating? Then there's another little box you put in there. Uh, what's the expected age? Isn't that amazing what we do there? Well, this group of scientists did not do that. They went down to the bottom of the Grand Canyon, Cardinia basalts, got what are supposedly the oldest rocks in the Grand Canyon, took them to the evolutionist lab, very reliable lab, said date these rocks, did not fill out the form. They dated about, I think it was four or five different methods, came up with completely different ages, ranging from hundreds of millions of years difference in age in each method, which invalidates the whole process right there. But they arbitrarily chose 1.07 billion years old. 
Why? We don't know. That's the one they chose. Then the same group went to the top of the Grand Canyon where it's supposed to be the youngest rocks. Took them to the same lab, did not fill out the form, and the youngest rocks turned out to be 300 million years older than the oldest rocks. See, it really doesn't work, folks. It really does not work. Trust God's word as the only reliable source. Here's a gentleman, another gentleman who has his PhD. I just have an affinity for nuclear physics. A radiometric date for rock layers near a fossil is accepted only, get this, only if it fits into the grand evolutionary scheme of things. If this is not the case, then either new samples are taken or a different dating method is used. This is a situation where results are interpreted in order to obey the evolutionary dogma. This is what really happens. If the date does not agree with what they want, they throw it out and redate it. What I'm telling you is what really happens, not what's in your textbooks. Jim Mason, PhD in experimental nuclear physics again. Since the calculations of age are quite sensitive to these assumptions, and since it is clear that we cannot know if the assumptions are true, and since radiometric dating produces wildly inaccurate results for rocks of known age, it is quite reasonable to conclude that radiometric dates are entirely unreliable. Let's go back to God's word. Long ages aren't really necessary for what we observe out there, folks. They're not. Large canyons in a day. Little Grand Canyon by Mount St. Helens, one-fourth the scale model of the Grand Canyon, has some of the same geological formations of the Grand Canyon. How long did it take to make that canyon? How about one day? And we've got other examples, too. Sedimentation in one day. Canyon at Mount St. Helens. If you took a look at all the layers of sedimentation there, you'd assume it's about 1,000 years old or older, but it was laid down in accumulation about one day. Coal in less than one year. Oil in one hour. That's what we can do today. Rapid stalactite growth. Top or bottom stalactites? No, T for top. Just remember T for top, then by default the other one's got to be bottom. <laughs> One inch per year. I was in the uh, Arizona one year. I've been there every year because I like heat. <laughs> but there's some Kirchner Caverns over in Arizona. Kirchner Caverns, they're um, southeast of Phoenix. Went in through, took the tour. Now, I'm not there to bother the tour guy because they have a job to do and they, they're trying to make money too. We'd work. I'll talk to him afterwards in private if I need to. So be careful how you do things. Went all the way through this and I listened to the millions and millions of years. Then we got towards the end and here's this slide title about this long. And he makes this statement. We don't know how that got here because it wasn't here last year. The evidence is right there in front of them, but they can't see it because evolution has blinded them to the truth. Diamonds. You know we can make diamonds in one day better than what we find naturally done? Petrified wood in one week. And we had a worldwide flood, which was responsible for the fossil record. See, long ages are really not necessary for what we observe when you learn the true science. So four challenges I have to many of our Christian university professors and church leaders. So not us. We're okay. But this is to our Christian university professors. Not all of them either, because some are on board. Number one, without adding to Scripture, support anywhere in the Bible where it teaches the earth is billions of years old. Cannot be done. So that's a challenge I have to many of our church leaders and professors. Two, 
Why do you ignore all the biblical evidence for literal days? Because they're ignoring that, looking for anything else they can. So that's the second Peter through eight, the gap theory, which we didn't cover. Why do you ignore the many scientific evidence that demonstrate the earth is young? Why do they do that? When there's overwhelming scientific evidence for young earth, they're just looking for anything to be like the world. And why do you elevate the interpretation of scientific evidence over scripture? Those are four questions and challenges I have for many of our church leaders and professors in Christian universities. And here's a reminder. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James 4.4. We're supposed to know the gospel, present the gospel, and defend it. That's what we've gone through here. The gospel is a simple gospel, but you can study it for a lifetime, can't you? Uh, we don't have that book anymore. We do have this one. This is a great video for the days of creation being literal days. Then it goes through the death issue, death and sin. Also go through a whole piece of what they're teaching and what they're not teaching in our schools. And then it ends with that uh, piece I ended with last night on David and Goliath. You'll see that on there. We have children's books out there. We need to get our children on board. These are questions children have actually asked and uh, how to answer them so the child can understand them. So we do have resources. Don't forget our three one-day courses. Again, we come to your church to do these courses. Albuquerque looks like a great city because you have a church right here that, can take, that is already taking a leadership role, and we want to take it through the whole city. We have a basic creation training class for teens and above, an advanced apologetics class for high school and above, and a teacher training class for anyone who wants to learn how to teach better or wants to just learn how to teach. We have those courses. We come to you. And then again, we had our five-day class in North Carolina. We have our brochures out on that. We have a trifold brochure, and we have a full four-page brochure on just this. This is the course that will train you how to teach, so you can go back to your church and start teaching. We need teachers for the children. We need, desperately need teachers for the high school and college. They're the next generation of leaders in this country. Let's get them straight while they're in church. Then we need the adults. So we need teachers at all levels who can do this and be confident about it. This is what this course does. Five days. And then that's all part of our education project, which is a very exciting project that we're doing right now to help protect this next generation. We're trying to train up teachers in every city in this country who can teach this. If you have questions, also, I need to pass these around. If you have questions, we come out with a newsletter. It's electronic, so all you have to do is press a key if you don't like it. But if you're interested in signing up for our newsletter, we'd appreciate that. It comes out once or twice a month. I'll get one for each area there. And if you're signed up, and like I say, what we do in there, we talk about some of the things we, are, we have been doing. I also have a feature article in there. The next feature article I'm going to do on something Abraham Lincoln said and something Nikita Khrushchev said. They both said the same thing, but from a different viewpoint. And I'll give you a quick paraphrase. America will not be destroyed from outside. We will destroy ourselves from within. 
Abraham Lincoln warned us over a century ago that's what would happen. Yes, it's happening in America today. I'm going to write a whole article on that. And I tend to write a lot of things on that. My next talk, Battle Cry for the Next Generation. What has happened and how can we fix it? If you have any questions, I'm available for questions. Um, need anything, uh, let me know. If you want to talk about my grandchildren, I'll do that too. Uh, remember, we have a big task, but what an opportunity that is to go out there and preach to a world that doesn't know Jesus Christ. Many false gospels around. Remember, the central core is Jesus Christ. I like to start there. I usually don't start with creation. I'll start with Jesus Christ, go to John three seventeen, then go backwards that way. So, again, if you have questions, if you don't, we are all done. You got a 10-minute break. That's plenty of time to go outside, get jumping jacks or push-ups in. Thank <laughs> you.